We just go out to have a great time. Yeah, when we bump into people, then then that's fine. I usually come around the Lower East Side. Stay mostly downtown because that's where most stuff is happening. Uptown's kind of boring, and uh, it's more younger crowd down here. Money's no object, but I don't like clubs, and I don't like people that are in fancy clothing trying to impress. I like club. I mean, I like bars that are rock. That's why I always shoot Lower East Side or Williamsburg because I want to see rockers when I'm single. For a lot of people, New York City is the very definition of nightlife. From sports bars to supper clubs, from dance halls with VIP rooms to dive bars with jukeboxes, there are plenty of places to sit, drink, and listen to music. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, nightlife in New York City. The draw, what's hot. We'll also delve into some of the issues and concerns that revolve around this often controversial industry. Safety, liquor licenses, noise complaints. And what's with ladies tonight? Why do only men have to pay a cover? Glad you're with us for Cityscape. Good morning. Complaints against the nightlife industry are common. People gripe about drunks, noise, a lack of security. But nightlife advocate Gamal Hennessy says the industry gets a bum rap and is fundamental to the city, not only fiscally, but socially. Hennessy, who's a lawyer by day, argues his case in a new book called Seize the Night, the Business and Culture of New York Nightlife. How do you define nightlife, Gamal? Well, nightlife, the way I define it in in my writing, is um, adult activities done in that's with the primary goal of social interaction. So, going to bars, lounges, wine bars, nightclubs, live music performances, things like that. Those would actually fall under the definition that I use for nightlife. You have created several categories for why people go out. What would you say are the top three reasons people go out at night? I believe the top three reasons are consumption, entertainment, and connection. And I'll, I'll elaborate on what those are. Um, consumption is primarily what it is that we take in. Some people, it's the drinks that they want to drink. Some people, it's the food that they want to eat. Some people like to go to a certain place where they can smoke, whether it's hookah or cigars or whatever. Um, Entertainment would be the music they listen to, the um, performances they go to see, or any other type of things that they can do that they can't really get in sitting in front of a TV or in front of a computer. And connection is just, you know, interaction with each other, where it's meeting new people or connecting with people that you already know, anything along those lines. I think those are the major three, but I think in the book there are like maybe seven or eight that I highlight. Yes, you also have flash, obligation, release, acceptance, and sex. Yes. Well, actually, Now that I think about it, sex would probably be one of those top three, if not the top one out of all of them. You divide the nightlife population into four parts. You say there are natives, operators, amateurs, and fanatics. Yes. 
the reason that we've broken it down into four categories is that because there's a certain pattern of behavior that each one of them displays as they go out on a consistent basis. An operator is simply someone who works in the nightlife environment, whether they manage this place, they own the place, or they simply work in it. It's more of a, a business relationship that they have with nightlife. A native is someone who utilizes nightlife as part, as part of their general um, social life. They might go out three, four, five nights a week, and it's something that it's one of the reasons that they live in New York. It's one of the reasons why they're here. And if there was no nightlife here, they probably they may or may not actually live in the city. An amateur is someone who is who wants to be in nightlife but hasn't had very much exposure to it and therefore is not completely comfortable with, you know, what's going on in nightlife and may actually run into some problems because of that unfamiliarity. What kinds of problems? Well, the most common situation is where they go out and they might drink too much too fast. Mm -hmm. Or they might go to a place that they don't really like or they don't really understand what it is that's going on because they've never actually been exposed to that sort of thing before. There's a lot of different issues that people can run into until they actually become familiar with the, with the process, with what actually goes on in certain types of venues. And then you have the fanatic, which is the type of person that knows what it is that they can and cannot handle. They know where they can do whatever the things it is that they like to do, but they usually set out to go past their limits. They will consistently go overboard. They will wind up, you know, getting thrown out of places, getting arrested, uh, winding up in the hospital, not knowing how they got home, really confused about the entire thing. And they actually... A lot of the issues and problems that occur in nightlife primarily focus from that one group. Would you say that they're the minority and the natives are the majority? I would absolutely say that. You consider yourself a nightlife advocate, am I correct? Yes. Yes, I am. Now, what does that mean exactly for you? Well, basically what that means is because uh, I'm trying to develop a media vehicle, the perspective that I'm using with that vehicle is to actually promote the fact that nightlife is vital to the strength of the city as a whole. And I try to write all of my stories and write the book from the position that New York needs nightlife, both for the people who actually go to it and enjoy it and for the people who don't go to it and enjoy it because there's so much of our financial strength and so much of our modern culture comes out of it that the people who don't enjoy nightlife on a regular basis still benefit from it just from a secondary standpoint. It's a significant economic engine here in New York. Yes. And as you point out in the book, it is also responsible for some musical genres, like jazz. The development of jazz, a large part of it came out of New York City venues back in the, um, far back as the 20s up into the 50s and 60s, salsa music, folk music, house music, hip-hop music, um, punk music, there's different areas of the city where each one of these musical genres actually developed. A lot of them didn't, weren't originated here. But because we had a, such a diversity of our population and a diversity of venues, a lot of those musical genres, a lot of those pioneers in music came to New York to actually develop those, those arts. Would you say, Gamal, that music is the one thing that defines the experience of nightlife culture more than anything else? I would say it would be one of the 
most important things that define a nightlife experience or a nightlife venue. I mean, when people ask me, where should I go or what kind of party should I go to, my first question back to them is, well, what kind of music do you want to hear? Because if someone is really into house music, from me sending them to a hip-hop club will completely eliminate them having a good time. They won't be able to do it because the music actually defines so much of what it is that goes on in that venue. So music is the second most important thing that a lot of people focus in on when it is that they go out. Liquor number one? Liquor, well actually no, because liquor is kind of a, a universal constant. I mean, as long as you go into a nightlife venue, you can be almost assured that they have a liquor license and they have some liquor. The most important thing, I think, is the type of connection that people want to make. So I think the the level of connection, the type of connection that a person wants is like the largest defining feature when someone is choosing where they're going to go on any given night. You write, Gamal, that a bar without women is a dive bar, a sports bar, a cigar bar, or more often closed. I take it that women are very important to the nightlife industry. <laughs> there is no more important draw that a venue can have, by and large, unless you're talking about a gay bar, that a venue can have than the fact that it can actually attract women. It is my contention that a lot of the, a lot of the cultural aspects that grow out of nightlife grow out of nightlife because they're put in there to entice women to show up. Um, the decor, the, the different types of drinks, the, the dance floor, the music, all of those things are created and made available to attract women. Because once you attract the women, you will attract the men. And once you attract the men and the women, then people will start to spend money. Then they will stay and they will have a good time. If guys go to a place and they look around and there aren't any women, they will leave. If women go to a place and, they, and they're the only women there and there's an overabundance of men, they will too probably leave. And after that, your place is empty. And very shortly after that, your place is closed. There is a phenomenon called ladies' night. There's no phenomenon called men's night because, well, the venue doesn't really need to attract the men. They need to attract the women. Some men, though, find that discriminatory. Where do you weigh in on that issue? The reason why this whole process works is because you have women who are willing to be a part of it and who actually enjoy it. If you, if you somehow penalize them for that, then you are actually going to destroy the entire, the entire ecosystem would collapse. It, won't, it simply won't work. Now, clearly, we're talking about how important women are to the nightlife industry, but let's talk a moment about how important the nightlife industry is to certain segments of the population. And you focus some time in your book on how important nightlife is to the homosexual community in New York. For a long time in the United States, and especially in New York, a lot of homosexuals, minorities, artists, a lot of different types of people gravitated toward nightlife venues because they could go there and they knew that the lifestyle that they had would be accepted. They knew that they could find people who shared a similar lifestyle. They knew that they could actually express themselves without the negative repercussions. When you had movements come out of New York City nightlife like Stonewall, which was a pivotal turning point in 
gay culture that came out of the bar scene in the West Village back in the 1960s. A lot of the culture, a lot of the music, a lot of the design, a lot of the fashion is generated by the homosexual community. It is very important to the the overall ecosystem as women are. What would you say, Gamal, is the best thing that ever happened to the nightlife industry in New York City? I would have to say that that would be the rise of the DJ. And I say that because, as I said, music is so pivotal to the nightlife experience. Before DJs, you had the main way you got music in a venue was through a live band. But once you actually have DJs, whether you're talking about turntables or CDJs or anything like that, you're now talking about a party that can start five, six o'clock, and actually go on continuously 15, 16 hours because these guys can actually, they can actually draw from every type of musical style. They can actually create any kind of mood or vibe that they want within that um, experience. They have the ability to shape the party in a way that uh, a live performance really can't do. What would you say is the worst thing that ever happened to the nightlife industry? There's a couple things that I can think of, but I think I'm going to go with the zoning issue. The problem is that certain operators have to they have to put a venue in a place that balances several needs at once. They have to put it in an area where people will actually be willing to come to them because otherwise they're going it's going to be an empty room. But they have to balance that with the interaction that they're going to have with local residents because creating a nightlife venue always creates the potential of creating friction in a community between the residents and the operator. So what a lot of operators do is they will go into an area where it's mostly commercial um, zoning. The problem becomes, though, once they set up in these areas and the, the areas start, gentrification actually takes hold. And then you have boutiques and you have restaurants and you have hotels and they all kind of gravitate to these areas where nightlife operators have set up. And at a certain point, the zoning will change. So all of a sudden, it's not commercial, it's mixed use. And the next thing you know, there are condos going up in areas that were primarily nightlife areas. And then the operator is faced with this situation where the people who now live in the area, who moved into the area because it's this vibrant area that they wanted to be in, are now looking to push out the nightlife operator because now they claim that the operator is reducing the quality of life in the area. No question, New York City has seen quite a few disputes over noise, litter, and other problems associated with the nightlife scene. What then would you say is the best way to keep the peace in situations like that? I think it requires an ongoing discussion. I think that there are certain things that need to be done throughout the process of opening up a venue, um, building a condo building, um, seeing the, the change in a certain neighborhood that requires both the nightlife industry, the local government, and the local residents to be in this kind of constant communication so that each one can actually articulate what it is that they're looking for, what problems they are facing, so they can actually come to some kind of political resolution. I think the problem that we have now is that the local government actually can, you know, 
impose whatever regulations it wants, and local residents have the political will to kind of push their agenda. But nightlife patrons, the people who actually go out to clubs, don't have any voice in this process. And they need to kind of articulate what it is that they're looking for so that everyone is actually involved in the process of protecting and enhancing both the community and nightlife simultaneously instead of creating a contentious, conflicting relationship where operators feel like they are under siege and community residents feel like they will never be able to sleep and local government kind of caught in the middle. Gamal Hennessy, the book is called Seize the Night, the Business and Culture of New York Nightlife. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. That was Gamal Hennessy. His book was released earlier this week, and his blog is aptly called New York Nights. You and I in a little toy show Buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got Set them free at the break of dawn To one by one they were gone You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. On this morning's show, we're taking a closer look at New York City nightlife. Night spots come and go all the time in New York City. In recent years, the legendary rock club CBGB and the bottom line closed. Now, the days are numbered for a popular neighborhood bar in Brooklyn. Freddy's Bar and Back Room is being forced out of its current home to make room for a controversial development. Ellen Burke has more. Freddy's Bar and Back Room in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, sits right in the middle of the area slated for development for the Atlantic Yards project. And since the judge has ruled the state can use eminent domain to clear residents and businesses like Freddy's out of the Atlantic Yards footpath, the dive bar's future looks bleak. Manager Donald O'Finn, who's worked at the bar for 15 years, has been behind some of Freddie's active campaigns against the project. That includes when patrons built a guillotine out of Pabst Blue Ribbon cans to behead a dummy that said eminent domain. He says he can't believe the state would take away land for a private development. So this sets a whole precedent. I mean, everybody may think, oh, it's just a bar. You know, screw it. Why don't you guys just grow up? Well, you know, this is really about property and about law. And if you think you're safe owning your house, wherever the hell it is, you're not. Part of the reason the state is allowing developer Bruce Ratner to use eminent domain to make way for the project is because it deemed the area to be blighted. And Ratner has promised to build affordable housing in the neighborhood. But O'Finn says that slice of Prospect Heights had a growing artistic community before the plan was announced. And he doesn't think the ruling has to do with the state of the area's building stock. I mean, he likes to use the term blight on it. Uh, and one of the reasons they call it blighted is because nobody's living around here. And that's because he own, Bruce Radner owns all the property and won't rent it to anybody. So nobody's actually living around here. And what I had said earlier was that we, do, we still do great business, cause, but people have to walk past two or three bars to get to us now because we don't have any neighbors because all these buildings are empty. But people still do it because I think we're that good of a bar. Freddie's patrons include middle-aged men who look like they know how to drink and small groups of 20 and 30-somethings who fit more into Brooklyn's hipster category. And some are willing to go to great lengths to testify to the quality of the bar. Some of the regulars have installed chains on the bar that they say they'll attach themselves to if and when Freddie's does get evicted. Others, like patron Mike Morgan, say they support the bar's fight more quietly and will simply spend money there until the end. I drink here. Um, anything more than that, you know, particularly that... My friends drink here. 
Right. So it's it's a good community. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of the new people who come in, I, I don't know them very well, but there's some people here that I go back with a long way, and it's a chance to see them. The Atlantic Yards project doesn't necessarily mean the end of Freddy's. Manager Donald O'Finn says the bar may relocate if it has to shut its doors. But he says there still won't be a happy ending. No matter what happens here, I always say that Freddy's is an idea and not an address, and, it, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll continue because the community is just too damn strong. They may knock us down, but we'll pop pop back up. Um, I'm not I'm not worried about that. I'm just I'm more worried about, you know, how this whole thing has come down, changing the law that allows this to happen, and getting a fair shake for us and for the other people in the community that are are, are being you know wrongly evicted and, and just wrongly harassed. Freddie's owner Frank Yost shares that sentiment. He's owned the bar for 13 years. I met him while he was sipping a drink at the bar with his son. I have a lease. Uh, I'm an honest man. I haven't done anything wrong. And now, ostensibly, I'm being thrown out of my butt for not doing anything wrong. After clearing another legal hurdle, city officials and the developers gathered for a groundbreaking of the Atlantic Yards project on March 11th. But just because work is underway, Freddie's manager Donald O'Finn says he's still worried the economy will keep the project from getting done. And everyone will have been moved out of the neighborhood for nothing. Now, he may successfully throw everybody out of here, and which has been my fear from the beginning. They're going to throw everybody out. They've got this beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. Throw everybody out, flatten it, and then leave it alone. And never touch it because of the economics, because of this, because of that, whatever reasons. Developers don't think that'll happen and have continually promised the Atlantic Yards will be a huge boon for Brooklyn. But for now, at least, Freddy's is still open and a PBR is still 275. For Cityscape, I'm Ellen Burke. In a city like New York, where to go is a big question. For the last decade, the people at Zagat have been putting together a nightlife guide to help us navigate the city when the sun goes down. We welcome now to Cityscape Kurt Gagey. He's the Zagat Survey's New York City editor. He joins us this morning to talk about Zagat's guide on New York City nightlife, which is marking its 10th anniversary this year. Hey, Kurt. How are you, George? Good. How hot is New York City's nightlife scene right now? I think it's as hot as it's ever been. I think uh, there's kind of a finite number of, of uh, bars that the city uh, uh, can handle, and if something closes, something else pops up in its place. But I certainly don't see uh, a drop-off uh, since the recession uh, started. I was going to ask you that question. Despite the gloomy economy, it still looks pretty good, huh? Historically, people drink when they're not feeling good. I think the restaurant scene is a little... Uh, um, more treacherous these days, but I certainly think the bar scene is certainly alive and well. How has the scene changed over the last decade? As we mentioned, the Nightlife Guide is marking its 10th anniversary now. Well, I mean, it's amazing what's happened in the last uh, 10 years. 10 years ago, the Meatpacking District uh, sold meat. You know, in 2000, a club called Lotus opened that really, you know, made that into uh, you know a destination nightlife area. It's sort of waned a little bit, but it's back bigger than ever right now. It's sort of like Vegas uh, in New York for, for uh, people who are into that kind of uh, nightlife. Uh, Williamsburg, as a nightlife destination, barely existed 10 years ago. I certainly can, uh, I, I'm sure you know that it's, it's you know, quite the destination. 
uh, these days. Smoking was banned in bars six years ago, and, and you know, nightlife uh, seemed to survive that. Uh, bottle service was invented, not really one of the best ideas of all time. Uh, and also the rooftop uh, became quite the nightlife destination. Actually, Kurt, for those who might not know what bottle service is, why don't you explain it? Bottle service is sort of the modern um, cover charge. To get into a quote-unquote hot club and to get a seat, to get real estate in that club, you have to buy a bottle of booze, uh, and it's expensive, a um, bottle of absolute, $350. Bottle service is still the only way that rich, ugly guys can meet hot young girls. <laughs> and that will never go out of style. In New York City, we have three main types of venues when it comes to nightlife. We have bars, we have clubs, we have lounges. Which do you think are doing better? I think I think bars are, but mainly because of their, they just outnumber everything else. Uh, I also think a bar doesn't require the investment of time that a, a nightclub or a lounge a lounge does. In other words, if you go to a nightclub you's, and you're paying all kinds of you know fancy money to to be there, you, you know you're not going to walk in, have a drink, and leave. You tend to party all night. Bars are a lot more casual, but then again, they certainly outnumber those other two genres. What else is popular after dark in New York City besides places to go and drink? Bowling is pretty popular right now, believe it or not. Uh, there's a lot of gaming going on. Places also have uh, ski ball, Buck Hunter, you know, all sorts of video games. And for a brief period, about six or seven years ago, karaoke was quite the rage. It's still around, but I don't think it's, it's quite as popular as it once was. Why do you think that's the case? I have no idea. I mean, sometimes these 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 trends sort of come and go. I mean, there was also a trend some years ago where having a bed in a lounge area was considered quite chic, and it popped up all over town. I mean, they were I guess they were considered a little naughty, but um, that that sort of uh, uh, faded away. I think people are are kind of fickle when it comes to some some kind of trends, and you know they tire of it quickly. During Prohibition, of course, New York City was full of secret bars, but there are still secret bars here, right? Well, there used to be secret bars in, in town, but the Internet has... Blown the cover? Yeah, totally. Just Spoiling all the fun. Yeah, well, I guess. I mean, there certainly still are places that are impossible to get into. Such as? Uh, Standard Hotel, 18th Floor, the bar at Mineta Tavern, bar at the Monkey Bar. You know, there always are places where... Whether there's a real demand or not, they act as though there's a, a real demand at the door and, and get the right kind of people inside. As the editor of the Gats Nightlife Guide, do you always get in? <laughs> no. Oh, no. I, as the editor of the Gats Nightlife Guide, I, I never make my presence known because, as you know, Zagat is a consumer-based survey company. Mm -hmm. So our uh, ratings and, and um, reviews come from the experiences uh, of our readers. I certainly go just to, to look at places and, and see what they look like so that when I'm editing reviews, I have a, a sense of the place. But it's strictly we're strictly based on people just like you, George. What would you say is the most unique nightlife attraction you've come across? Well, years ago, there was a bar called The Coral Room in way west Chelsea, and one entire wall was an aquarium uh, with very exotic fish in it 
and then at midnight, mermen and mermaids in bathing suits dove in and, and swam around. And I was, I mean, I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in all my nightlife comings and goings. And it closed after two years. I mean, it's uh, it's a tough town. Yeah, I was going to say, New Yorkers are pretty fickle, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, oh, yeah, I saw the fish. Yeah, what else have you got? Well, let me ask you some best places questions. Okay. Best place to go on a shoestring budget? Best place to go on a shoestring budget? Well, I mean, I guess that would be maybe blue and gold in the East Village. I mean, really cheap drinks, really dive bar scene, but a great crowd and a lot of energy. Best place to spot a celebrity? Uh, The Standard Hotel, 18th floor. If you can get in. Yeah, which is pretty slim, but... um, you know, my best advice is to be a gorgeous girl or have Madonna with you, and then you can definitely get in. Best place to go on a first date? I like Apotec, which is in uh, Chinatown. It's dim. It's cool. It uh, is set in a former opium den. I know that you're already working on the next nightlife guide. What trends are you following right now? Well, right now, it's one of the biggest things that's happening in town are retractable roofs believe it or not. And it's uh, it's astonishing to me that it's taken this long. I think I mentioned to you earlier that rooftops were a big uh, trend over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because rooftops were very popular 100 years ago in Times Square, which was sort of where uh, was the hot nightlife scene in uh, 1910. Uh, rooftops were popular because there was no air conditioning. Well, they're back. They've been back, keep coming back um, over the last four or five years. And this year, suddenly, every place uh, I visit has a retractable roof so that these rooftops um, can be used year-round. And I think that's a, a very cool idea. Yeah, I mean, people will pay just to be up there, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, exactly. Conversely, if it's wintertime and you want to have a great view of the Empire State Building, now there are places where you can go even in the winter and do that. Kurt, thanks so much. Okay. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, George. Thanks, Kurt. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Kurt Gagey from the Zagat Guides. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and to learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. We're also now on Facebook and Twitter, listed as WFUV's Cityscape. Sign up now to become a fan and a follower. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend. 